Hello from Austin, Texas. This is episode number five of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. Who are you? Um, let me check my ID. Uh, Bobby Chesney, professor here at UT. How about you? Steve Vladek, also teaching here at UT. Uh, Bobby, it's about 2 o'clock on what day is today? Tuesday, February 21st. And still no music to introduce the podcast. Still no music, but at least we have things to talk about, um, including a rare Tuesday episode because I am getting on a plane to run away from this place as fast as I can. You just had a bad experience in class the other day or what? You know, this guy I'm teaching with this semester, he really just shows me up left and right with all of his knowledge. <laughs> I've heard about that guy. He's the worst. Um, but actually, no, I mean, I'm heading over to, to Ireland to testify as part of the ongoing litigation between Facebook and various Europeans over privacy shield and cross-border data sharing agreements and, and that whole big mess. All right, so clearly we're going to have to talk next week about your experience when you get back. Uh, that plus I want to hear how uh, the Guinness factory is doing. I assume that'll be the venue in which you're testifying? Um, that would be a great, or, or maybe that's where I'll go beforehand to, to kick the day off. <laughs> now, right? now you're talking. So Bobby, what's, what's going on? Uh, uh, some stuff happening in the world of national security? Yeah, there, there's, you know, the, I'm almost disappointed because each episode so far has been, uh, you know, warmed up by the administration with some dramatic revelations. It's really a little bit calmer this week, and frankly, it's kind of nice. We can talk about, how about for starters, what happened in the Supreme Court this morning with an important case in which you have an active role, and uh, we can discuss that a bit. And then, um, so we'll talk about the Hernandez case. Then perhaps we can move on to talk about some uh, new developments in Iraq on the ground as, uh, as the uh, effort to retake Mosul moves into the, uh, the west side of the Tigris and, and the uh, role of U.S. ground combat forces gets uh, closer to the front lines. So we're going to need a map for segment number two. We might need a map. Uh, and finally, I thought maybe we'd do a quick update on the state of the military commissions, that little oh, piece of the Guantanamo those. puzzle that you know we always forget about. But Are they're we still doing that? They're like cockroaches, you know, nuclear oh. War is going to destroy mankind, and the military commissions will still be going on. You know, there, there, there'll always be a need for them in some settings. The interesting question is, is this one of them? Well, I guess we'll see where we are in half an hour or so. Okay, so let's start off with, with the Hernandez v. Mesa litigation, which was argued before the court just a few hours ago. Um, Steve, can you, since you're a party or involved with the party of the litigation, maybe disclose your role and, and let me underscore, I'm not involved at all, and I, I barely know what I'm talking about here, which is probably perfectly obvious. <laughs> which makes Bobby the much better person to listen to. So I'm co-counsel to the <laughs> petitioners, in this case, the Hernandez family. Um, we said that we talked about this a bit last week on the podcast, right? Hernandez is a case arising out of an allegedly unjustified cross-border shooting by a U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agent, Agent Mesa, of an allegedly unarmed 15-year-old Mexican national um, who, at least as alleged in the complaint, was playing in the culvert um, that is basically today the border between the U.S. and Mexico, between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, where the Rio Grande used to be, I guess. Um, and, and he was shot well in the culvert. He was shot well on Mexican soil. So it raises this interesting question about whether the Fourth Amendment even applies to a non-citizen like Sergio Hernandez standing on Mexican soil, lacking substantial connections to the United States at the time he is seized in right. Fourth so Amendment terms. And Officer Mesa or Agent Mesa is, is arguing that he was provoked. And that's we're not going to get into the factual disputes. We want to zero in on... Well, uh, and it's worth noting that at yeah. this stage, we're not up to the factual dispute, right? That the, the district court granted a motion to dismiss. So uh, this is on appeal of the, motion, of the motion to dismiss. So we assume the facts as alleged in the complaint, right. not because they're true, but because... That's process. That's process. So, so we take it as yeah. if... Mesa was unarmed, 
the shooting was unprovoked. And the question is whether the Fourth Amendment applies in that context. And just to add some Fed courts nerdistry, um, whether even if it does, Agent Mesa can claim the defense of qualified immunity that he did not know at the time mm-hmm. that what he was doing was clearly uh, unlawful. Um, and whether the federal courts have the power to create a damages remedy themselves right. under the so-called Bivens Doctrine. Exactly. And so our thought was we might zero in on the first set of issues. Not that the qualified immunity and Bivens issues are not important. They're terribly important. And good stuff for Fed Court's final exams. Exactly. So if you're a student listening in Steve's class, that dun, dun, dun. take note. Actually, this won't help you at all since we're going to bracket those issues and set them aside and talk instead about the question of extraterritorial constitutional rights. And let's not be uh, bashful about why we think this is important. We think there are implications for at least two very unrelated uh, contexts. Uh, Steve, you want to mention one of those? Sure. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts brought it up himself during this morning's oral argument, which is, you know, if you're going to apply the Fourth Amendment to a seizure of a Mexican national on Mexican soil in this context, how is that different from a seizure of a Yemeni or Iraqi national on Yemeni or Iraqi soil by a drone operator who is sitting at a computer station in Nevada. And then secondly, and, and that, that analogy obviously is, is kind of on the surface, the use of force where the actor who uh, pulls the trigger is inside the United States and then the ordinance is delivered outside the United States. Then there's, I think, another analogy here that I'm, I'm not sure is, is as obvious, and that is the implications that extension of the Fourth Amendment in that kind of setting actor in the U.S., uh, recipient of the impact outside the U.S., this seems to me to have significant implications for NSA and other intel collection activities, especially in the SIGINT realm. Or at least it could. I mean, yeah. I think and I think the real question is sort of there's a two-step process here, right? Which first is should the Fourth Amendment ever apply across the border? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second is if so, what's the limiting principle there you go. if it's not going to apply in the context we just mentioned? Right, exactly so. And so we, we should also flag... Uh, at least in the litigation, there is a, an alternative argument. If the Fourth Amendment argument doesn't fly, I, th- I think that the, the family has argued in the alternative that perhaps this should be viewed as a Fifth Amendment, sort of shucks the conscience, substantive due process, taking of a life. Which, which of course, you know, from a litigation perspective is, is covering your bases. I, I will say, I think it's, it's trying to capitalize on a quirk in our doctrine, which is that Fourth Amendment jurisprudence takes this location of the search or seizure as the relevant place. So here, where the bullet enters from Nandes' body, Fifth Amendment doctrine takes the place of the government's conduct. Mm. Um, in this case, the discharging of the weapon as the relevant locus. So it actually isn't even really an extraterritorial Fifth Amendment claim. Now, is there, so we've got some analogous extraterritorial cases with the Fourth Amendment. Do we have, well, I guess I guess we've got Johnson versus Eisentrager, but we don't have a cross-border extraterritorial extension case for the Fifth Amendment, do we? We don't, although, you know, we do have contexts in which the government has assumed that, for example, the Due Process Clause would protect citizens um, overseas, Al-Laki being a good example of that. We also, Bobby, and this is important to note, the border is not an on-off switch for the Fourth Amendment already, right? I mean, so the Second Circuit and the Seventh Circuit have both held that even U.S. citizens Mm -hmm. are not protected by the Warrant Clause of the Fourth Amendment overseas because it would be impractical and anomalous. But the reason this clause. Um, The courts have also recognized that non-citizens with substantial voluntary connections to the U.S., even when they're outside the U.S., will have at least some minimal Fourth Amendment protections. But whereas here, what makes it a hard case for the family is it's a non-citizen who, you know, as far as the fact pattern suggests, has no particular ties to the United States until the moment of, of being shot. 
Um, Indeed, and so and so then the question becomes, what do we make of that? So so let me start with the sort of where we are doctrinally, Bobby, right. and then maybe we can flesh out what the pressure points are. Okay. So doctrinally, of course, the court has never been super sympathetic to applying the Constitution to non-citizens overseas. Um, right in the Verdugo or Quides case in 1990, um, the court declined to apply at least the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment to the search of a Mexican national's home by DEA agents with the consent of the Mexican government. Um, but at the same time. The court in the Boumediene case in 2008. Wait, can I interrupt? Yeah. Before we get to Boumediene, let's. It might be useful for listeners if we unpack the Rehnquist uh, opinion yeah. and then and talk about the, the Kennedy concurrence from. Verdugo Which certainly matters, Kennedy. right? So Justice Rehnquist writing for this is a bit controversial, but four or five justices, and we'll get to yeah. that in a second. At least four justices. At least four him, justices. Him and at least three others. Um, right, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, wrote a very categorical opinion. Yes. Um, that the border really is an on-off switch. That yeah. there is nothing it's formalistic. Right. Nothing circumstance-specific um, right. about the yeah. nature of the search. You're a non-citizen without substantial ties to the U.S. You're therefore the US, not one of the people. Right. right. You're not one of the people for whom the Fourth Amendment person's reference uh, is, is discussing. Um, and so that formalistic approach sounds like a, a you know, complete on-off switch. The uh, the wrinkle is the fifth vote, and, and this comes from Justice Kennedy, who did join that opinion, but also wrote separately to elaborate on his thoughts. He, I think the phrase... Uh, in uh, Judge Jones highlights this in her en banc concurrence from the Fifth Circuit. She says, look, he, yes, he wrote separately, but he opens by saying, I agree with the fundamental principles here, and it becomes a more debate than that. About- more than that, he yeah. says, I concur in the majority opinion in full. Yeah. And so and so we have this problem where Justice Kennedy's opinion says that he joins Justice Rehnquist. <laughs> but then he talks about some other stuff. Indeed. So, so how do you read Kennedy's opinion? Um, indeed, the way that the first question presented in this case is worded, it's basically a que- it's basically addressed yeah. to Justice Kennedy. Dear yeah. Justice Kennedy. Can you clarify what you meant? Exactly. In Verdugo Requides, when you said you joined uh, Rehnquist in full, did you mean it? So position one, one outcome here that's possible, we can call the Rehnquist outcome. It's It's formalistic. If you're outside the United States and you are a non-citizen without substantial ties to the U.S., we're done. You, you're just you have you may have other complaints, but you don't have Fourth Amendment or probably any other rights. Although that's an interesting question. Well, I mean, let's bracket habeas, but certainly yeah. no other no other Bill of Rights protections. Right, exactly. No. Now the the opposite view or the, the the other view that that could be derived both from Boumedien, which is a Kennedy opinion, and and maybe from his concurrence in Verdugo. Funny opinion. how those are related. Indeed, it's almost as if the same guy wrote them. And and didn't change his mind between them. <laughs> no. Exactly. And, and Bobby, that view is much more functionalist. Well, absolutely. Instead of formalism, it's functionalism. Um, and it's almost easiest to talk about this using what will likely be a more familiar case to the audience, Boumediene. Yep. Um, people often talk about Boumediene as a sort of a three-factor test. I think it only counts as a three-factor test if you kind of clump a bunch of factors together. There are a whole bunch of factors. Uh, Steve, do you want to kind of walk us through? Whew. And, that, and that, of course, Boumediene, just to be clear, that's the Guantanamo case from 2008 that concluded that non-citizens wholly outside the United States are able to uh, invoke the protection of the suspension clause, the structural protections of the suspension clause. And, and again, largely echoing the Kennedy concurrence, not the Rehnquist majority Absolutely. or plurality in yeah. Verdugo. There's no question about right. that. Right. And so part of what Kennedy is talking about in Boumediene is balancing basically the practical obstacles um, inherent in extending that constitutional protection to that overseas territory against the nature of the detention, the nature of the government uh, injury, the nature of the government mm-hmm. conduct, um, what kind of process has been provided to ensure that the government is actually acting lawfully in this context? Are there other remedies? I mean, there are a lot of different things that kind of points to. And the, and the to. practicalities of, you know, if you, if you were to extend a particular right or how protection far would this go? in that particular circumstances, how, how sensible or nonsensical 
might that be? And indeed, I think in Bumetti and Bobby, and, and let me know if you disagree with this, I think Kennedy was very concerned that sending habeas to Guantanamo not be read as sending habeas everywhere. Oh, indeed. Um, and that Guantanamo was unique from his perspective because of the, un- the this very special kind of control and what Kennedy even called, I think, de facto sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I love the phrase that he referred to, Guantanamo as being so thoroughly exclusively a U.S. lawmaking uh, context that it was under the constant, quote, constant jurisdiction of the United so here, States. But here, so here's the thing. So, so one of the things that we tried to do, and let me say again, I mean, I'm co-counsel to the petitioner, so I'm a little biased. Bobby, we tried to dress this case, at least to some degree, in Boumediene's clothing. Um, obviously, the border is not Guantanamo. Um, but to us, that cuts in two different directions. I'm curious how you react okay. to this. Um, the first is, unlike Guantanamo, the United States actually does exercise ordinary law enforcement authority. Um, on and over the border, right? So that's to say, U.S. officers are constantly arresting people on and indeed over the border. There are examples of Customs and Border Patrol agents arresting people on Mexican soil on the other side of the culvert, right? Um, we're projecting force across the border in ways that we weren't at Guantanamo into Cuba, right? Um, so the, right, the Cubans might feel differently about that. They very well might. But I guess my point is there's a law enforcement presence at the border. That's not true at Guantanamo because we're not doing civilian law enforcement, right? That's not, it's a different situation. I, I, I'll say this. I think that the practicalities are very different in the sense that if, if you kind of widen the spectrum of Boumediene to look at uh, Bagram Air Base and other detention facilities sure. at the time, where ultimately habeas did not extend, where Boumediene did not extend, why didn't it extend there according to the you know the D.C. Circuit in the Al-Makala dis- litigation? And the answer was basically, look, th- this is a combat zone, and, and whatever else we say about Guantanamo, it's far physically removed, and therefore it's less intrusive. Now, I actually always found that that sort of logic a little bit odd in that, to me, the focus should have been on the circumstances of capture mm-hmm. and the potential disruption involved in trying to uh, relitigate the facts. Because or, otherwise it puts a lot of focus on where the people are detained, not where they were well, captured. It creates, it creates an obvious disincentive to take people out of theater. It creates And an incentive to move them in theater. Absolutely. Which is what happened to in To keep them in theater where it's less safe, to bring them into theaters, yeah. which may be bad for the, right. which is bad for the people that are being moved. So it always struck me as kind of odd, and it always seemed to me it would have made more sense for both Al-Makala and Boumediene, to have it turn on the circumstances of the detainee. If they're captured in civilian circumstances yeah. outside of combat zones... You're more tolerant. You're more comfortable. I, I, I think it's less intrusive. If people are captured in a, in a combat zone, I don't think we want to discourage the government from... You know, think about World War II and the, the endless numbers of, of, of German and other soldiers brought so here. How does that, so how does that cut here, Bobby? I mean, right, right. So, so, you know, our mutual friend Andrew Kent has been pretty vocal um, that he thinks that, that Boumediene... Um, really cross the line that this is sort of we're reaping the consequences that this is a good opportunity for the court to push back and reassert yeah. a bright line territoriality based rule is, is there a yeah. way to sort of go where you're going and and take a, a sort of a tentative functional step across the border without unleashing all these consequences well, that's, this is where i think it's interesting to think about the analogous cases we open this segment by by highlighting on one hand i think a lot of people look at hernandez and look at this case and think you know what can't we just say that if a border agent standing in the united states pulls out his gun and shoot somebody from the United States, that you're close, there's enough of a nexus with the United States and enough uh, enough 
proximity to where you can carve out just a small extension, maybe a, a small exception to Verdugo or Quidez without giving up the whole principle. And at first blush, I think that is tempting. You think, well, that, that's not a scenario that comes up all that much. But now instead of pulling out his gun, he pulls out, you know, a drone. Right, right. And so then the question is, if you accept that principle, then why doesn't, as Chief Justice Roberts asked at oral argument today, why doesn't the same rationale open the floodgates to constitutional tort litigation coming from everyone who's either, uh, you know, who has standing to raise the the rights of a uh, person abroad so this goes targeted with a drone strike. So this goes back to our discussion of location, right? And this is where I think, you know, if Justice Kennedy is going to become convinced to side with us, the petitioners, right, um, it's going to come down to location, right? That that it's, that it's the rule is going to be about the proximity of the Mexican border of the United States, but also the unique nature of law enforcement authority that we exercise there. Um, that both of those, to me, are rather significant distinguishing characteristics, not necessarily who's pulling the trigger on the U.S. side, but where the force is being projected. So, for example, right, if the Nevada drone operator fired the drone to kill someone standing on U.S. soil, we might, Bobby, say that the Constitution allows that action, that maybe it was reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. We wouldn't say the Fourth Amendment categorically didn't apply. Well, if they're on U.S. soil, I think that's an easier case and doesn't even really raise these hard issues. If they're, what, what I'm curious about is would you take the same position if they were on the border, but it was an AQAP agent or something, and, and there was a context of the AUMF, the claim of the larger armed conflict. Sure. In other words, what I want to get at is, is it possible that the outcome here could be limited to law enforcement activity and the nature of the government's activity in a way that excludes counterterrorism and armed conflict? So let me say two things, right? First, even assuming that the Constitution applied in that context, obviously defending the border against invaders is going to be a context where everyone would laugh a constitutional claim out of court, right? Where, where on the merits, there'd just be nothing there. But, I mean, that's the right question. I, I think this case is going to rise and fall on whether Justice Kennedy is comfortable having the function be part of the analysis, right? And having the, whether it's a law enforcement operation as opposed to a military operation, be a relevant piece of the constitutional puzzle. Now, if I was an FBI investigator involved in sort of botnet takedowns and other things, I'd be listening to that and thinking, oh, that, that sounds a little, little bit risky for our activities when we are monitoring, collecting information on networks overseas. And so again, I think it's going to be all, this, this is why I think Justice Kennedy is so inclined to find these multi-factor yeah. tests where you need multiple of the factors present, right? Where yeah. I think it's going to be law enforcement and the border, not law enforcement or the border. I will say that when, when we get into this, and here I'm sort of thinking back to teaching con law in the fall, um, my students, I can well imagine someone raising their hand at this point saying like, well, wait a minute, how is this still interpreting the Constitution <laughs> as opposed to just legislating rules? Yeah. I mean, it, when you get into this kind of fine-grained parsing, from a sort of a realistic observation of the court perspective, this goes on. But but I do wonder if we kind of lost touch with the idea that the judges aren't necessarily supposed to be uh, legislating a set of rules to regulate this area. Maybe this should be a congressional affair. Yeah, although I guess, I mean, my, my, my I'm sensitive about Congress here because if there's any constituency less likely to pull on Congress's heartstrings than non-citizens without voluntary connections to the United States. Not sure who it is. True. Um, but that, that doesn't, that's a, a point about what might happen. It doesn't change the fact that it might be their responsibility to do oh, it. Oh, for sure. And listen, I mean, we'd all, I, I think we'd often be better off if Congress took the first shot at, at demarcating um, rights and constraints on the government. Um, and it's worth noting in this case, right, that you know, the government argues that Congress has done so by making it a crime. 
right, for someone like Agent Mesa to murder somebody. Yeah. The government investigated Mesa and did not pursue charges. Yeah. There's a case in Arizona where they actually did indict the board. And there's agent. no civil uh, civil statutory analog to this or tort claim that could be brought in a Texas state law tort. I mean, this is one of my bugaboos, right, that the, that the federal legal regime for damages remedies against federal officers for constitutional That's violations narrower than the criminal regime? Is, in, is not just narrower, it's almost non-existent, right, that Congress has been incredibly derelict in providing any articulation, pro or con. So everything ends up as an attempted Bivens action or a 1983. Indeed. Well, 1983 is just for state officers, officers, right? So everything gets shoehorned into Bivens. So we said we weren't going to talk about Bivens. Um, But I do think it's worth noting that part of why this case is so important, Bobby, is because there's this lingering question that I at least would say is now more important than ever about the power of federal courts to create damages remedies against federal officers when Congress has refused to do so. Um, the Supreme Court has been very skeptical about these claims for the better part of the last 30 years, but it's kept them alive, even as yeah. Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas have urged to basically get rid of it. From the majority, or from the those who joined the Rehnquist opinion in Verdugo Oquides, who's still on the court? Nobody. All right, so we really don't know. With the, There's only eight justices on this one, unless... Gorsuch is on by the time the... Well, so it's possible. I mean, right. So one possible outcome of today is that the court splits 4-4 down the line and they hold the case over for re-argument before a nine-justice court in the fall. You know, I I guess all I would say is it seems to me that there are enough of these border shootings. I mean, the Arizona Republic documented somewhere in the north of 200 cross-border shootings over an eight-year period. That is pretty remarkable. At least 10 that have resulted in in deaths, right? It's only lucky that Agent Mesa, in this case, hit Hernandez as opposed to his U.S. citizen friends he was playing with. Yeah. So this is not a, a one-off that can be safely swept away that's never going to arise again. This is an issue that keeps arising. And so it seems to me that you know there is going to be at least some sentiment on the court for not suggesting that the border is a law-free zone in much the same way that what was pushing, I think, the majority in Boumediene was the specter of Guantanamo as a law-free zone. So if I had to guess, I'd say they'll try to avoid pinning this down by going with qualified immunity. But if they do reach this issue, they'll they'll do what they did in Bumedia and say, look, this holding, this extension of the functional test, limited to these facts. And of course, as this case illustrates, you can say that all you want, but the next case down the line is going to try to extend and rely upon this case. That's right. I mean, so I think if they go that route, they'd probably say more than they said in Boumediene. Um, <laughs> right. And, we'll try harder. We really mean it. Please don't. No, no, but I, I mean, I could see an opinion where Justice Kennedy actually says, you know, all we're t- th- this rule only applies, right? We're only saying that the Fourth Amendment applies when you have a law enforcement officer on U.S. soil firing a weapon across the border, yeah. right, as part of a law enforcement exercise yep. um, and not and no further. And where, and where the injury occurs yeah. on territory over which the U.S. exercises law enforcement authority. That, you know, if, if they're emphatic about that, yeah, I'm not sure how much helps. wiggle room that creates going forward. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And so if Justice Kennedy, if you and your clerks are listening <laughs> uh, and you are going to write this opinion and come out that way. Call please, us. Please, please uh, pay heed to Steve's admonition that you might want to be really extra clear about what the driving principles are and where their limits are. or Which, else which is a staple of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence. <laughs> Well, I will say that if, if that doesn't happen and if it comes out and just sort of extends the functional analysis to encompass the situation without really clear distinguishing uh, principles, and you're going to see a lot of talk about the, the intelligence collection yep. side uh, yep. being implicated as quite, well. Quite, quite. So, so I guess, you know, all that's Bobby's just to say, stay tuned. Yeah, exactly. So, good so, stuff so there. speaking of drone strikes in Iraq, right, there's there's more oh, Iraq yes. in the in the news. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting um, how little coverage there is in the front page of, of major papers about the latest developments in Iraq, 
But uh, as it happens, there is in fact a fairly substantial armed conflict underway in Syria and Iraq, and U.S. forces are now uh, in larger numbers than in the past on the ground at the front lines as uh, primarily Iraqi forces uh, continue to make their way through Mosul. Now, the thing that, uh, for those who aren't following this closely, the thing you have to understand is the Tigris runs through the city. That East Mosul is less densely packed. It's it's less hard to operate in as an as an urban combat setting. Uh, and for the most part, with lots of caveats, uh, they've cleared East Mosul. And over the past day or so, the uh, the effort to take West Mosul, where there are endless numbers of innocent bystanders, and we're told maybe a thousand or so or so. Uh, ISIL fighters uh, deeply embedded with all sorts of uh, bombs awaiting the uh, the Iraqi and other forces coming in. That ground offensive has begun, and there was an article yesterday highlighting the fact that whereas in the past uh, U.S. ground forces who were there primarily, in, in addition to advising and assisting, specifically to call in airstrikes, so ground controllers, um, they're now cleared to be, and in, in growing numbers, right up at the front lines, fully engaged with the Iraqi forces that they've been supporting. Um, and this was framed in some media outlets as this sort of evidence that, aha, it is different under Trump. He's less uh, risk averse when it comes to casualties, and he has somehow changed things from an ostensibly more, more careful or, or, or risk averse Obama. Um, in fact, if you look under the hood, it's a little more complicated than that. Apparently, the, uh, the authority, the authorization to central command that, and that is the uh, green light for any such fully forward deployment of the ground controllers, Steve, uh, comes from last November. Mm -hmm. And that was issued by the Obama administration in November. What seems to have changed between now and then is the volume at which uh, commanders in the field are beginning to push forward the ground controllers to take advantage of that authority. Now, is this an administration-specific change, or is it just that now we're moving into the context of West Mosul, where you've really got to have our ground controllers right there on the spot to make an instantaneous decision in a dense urban environment? I actually think it's kind of a non-story from a Obama versus Trump perspective. I think it's more the latter. But still, but still a story, right? I mean, that's to say, yeah. not 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 sort of a oh my gosh, look what the Trump administration is doing, but rather, hey, look what we, the United States, exactly. are still doing in Iraq. Right. So let's all resist. I guess our message, I think we can both Indeed. say, this, is don't try to fit this into the Trump versus Obama narrative. Fit this into the larger question of so, what is the role of U.S. ground forces there? It is unfortunately the case that for a year or so now, there's there's been sort of a perception that we don't really do ground forces there it's all airstrikes well there's a lot of airstrikes <laughs> i was gonna say but but the u.s troops on the ground in iraq yeah. might disagree yeah you've got you've got marines with artillery you've got all kinds of special operators i, I know we don't have formal numbers bobby just wild guess how many what what numbers of personnel we're talking about oh, well um, last i saw i thought in iraq we had something like five or six thousand uh ground forces not all of which are at the front line obviously but uh, increasingly more are and, th and this is separate and apart from the special operations uh Manhunting task force, which has gone into Syria to some extent, but it's sort of more mobile right. and not permanently yeah. stationed there. Now, the interesting question that is an Obama versus Trump difference, and this has been talked about, is whether Secretary Mattis's recommendation to the president, which is due, I think, within the month, about uh, what further steps should be taken, whether or not there will be a request to authorize anywhere from say 10, 20, maybe 30,000 ground forces to go into Syria and to take and hold territory. 
there's speculation. There's nothing but speculation at this point. I guess the important thing from a legal perspective is to realize that as long as you think the AUMF is applicable here, either the 01 AUMF or maybe the 02 Iraq AUMF. These are the, the authorizations for use of military force that we've discussed on prior episodes. Exactly. If you think they were applicable to justify the airstrikes, then there's no particular reason why you'd think that these further steps, including the insertion of ground forces, is is uh, problematic from a domestic separation of powers perspective. As a statutory matter, Bobby, but what about it politically? I mean, do you think that establishing some kind of beachhead in Syria is going to finally impel Congress to perhaps consider getting off of its keister? No, I don't think Congress is going to. No, I think that the incentives for Congress to uh, to finance and applaud where it seems appropriate, and then to criticize and complain where where things go south. Uh, are pretty powerful. Um, and I don't see, I've yet to see any uh, trial balloons out of the administration suggesting None. they would like legislation. On it, anything. On, yeah, right. No, that's right. <laughs> I mean, this, this seems to be a rather endemic problem right now. It, it may be Republican control of the Congress, but this is not a White House that seems interested in trying to get some new national security related Which is interesting, right? Because in that regard, we might see, we might be seeing history repeating in the sense that, right, the, you know, our friend Jack Goldsmith has said this, a lot of other folks have said this, that one of the big mistakes yeah. that the Bush administration made early on in its counterterrorism yeah. strategy was to do so many things unilaterally, which exposed it to the kinds of legal challenges That's right. that and, would have been on firmer footing with statutory support. And related to that, missing the window when you had unified party control of, of Congress and the White House and a relative sense of legislative momentum, at least as a possibility, failing or, or to see Or at that. least a lack of, of, Congress, of a, a small likelihood of Congress actually standing up to a, a president right. that they're not quite sure what to make of. Yeah. No, I continue to think that Congress isn't going to get involved here on AOMF renewal unless and until there's an, an ISIL, an Islamic State uh, detainee at Guantanamo. Who's who wins the habeas litigate, case. Or, or just puts in, in, reveals to people who don't follow this closely that, in fact, this would be very helpful. <laughs> Indeed, it's an open question. Okay, so speaking of things uh, Guantanamo-related, that's actually a good segue to get an episode update on what is happening with the military commissions. Oh. Where are they? What's happening? They're still going, right? They I mean, indeed. here we are, February 2017, and we're, we're, they're still ticking away. You know, Bobby, we, I, I guess there are a couple different points to make sure folks are up to date on. Um, so the first is one of the major, there are three major pending cases. There's the Nashiri case. Um, this is the guy who's accused of being involved in the bombing of the USS Cole in 2000, mm -hmm. the MV Lindbergh, a French tanker in 2002. Um, I'll, I'll get back to him in a second. There's the Al-Balul case. This is the sort of propagandist um, who was convicted by a military commission whose appeal is still pending. I said three, actually there are four, um, right? There's the 9-11 trial, KSM, yep. Ramzi Ben Al-Shib, the other masterminds. Um, and then finally, there's the sort of forgotten guy, right? Um, Hadi al-Iraqi, um, who's charged for sort of a, a later in the conflict conspiracy. Um, the Balul case is the only one of those four that has gone to a conviction. His um, appeal has gone up to the D.C. Circuit a couple times, Bobby. A fractured en banc court right, affirmed his conspiracy conviction last fall. There's now a cert petition that's about to be filed in Balul, raising what to me has always been the single biggest structural question about the military commissions, which is whether they're allowed to try offenses that are not recognized as international war crimes. In Balul's case, in co-eight standalone conspiracy. Right. So uh, what do you think the odds are the court will take up that case? Well, so here's the problem. I mean, the, the panel decision on this question, I think, teed it up nicely for the Supreme Court. You had a divided panel where Judges Tatel and Rogers said, no, um, Article Three forbids Congress from subjecting ordinary domestic offenses to trial by a military commission. You had a powerful dissent from Judge Karen Henderson. That would have made it, I think, very attractive to the Supreme Court. 
What muddies the waters a bit is the en banc court fractured. There was no majority. Um, there's a plurality opinion by Judge Kavanaugh that I think does tee up the merits, suggesting that Congress does have the power to subject domestic offenses to military commission trial. There's a strong dissent, again, from Tato Rogers Pollard. Um, but then there are these two weird opinions in the middle. There's um, Judge Patricia Millette, um, who basically said that this case was unique because Belul failed to object. And so his claim should only be reviewed under the highly deferential plain error standard. Right, that's only good for one train. Yeah, um, it's not going to be a big precedent. And there's a weird concurrence by Judge Wilkins, um, who basically taking a theory that our friend Peter Margulies actually uh, uh, largely came up with, um, suggested that Belua wasn't really convicted of inchoate conspiracy. That you could actually sort of reconstrue the record in hindsight as a, a conviction of the 9/11 attacks, where conspiracy was just the theory of liability. Yeah. I have to say, I don't find either of those narrower concurrences convincing, and neither did the rest of the D.C. Circuit. The question for the court is, are those two narrower grounds enough to make this what we call a vehicle problem? Yeah, well, it, it, normally you would say, look, this seems like a, a, a pretty ugly vehicle and not an appropriate one, but on the other and, hand... And a dying class of cases. Yes and no, right? Well, now, before, before November. Before November. Now we've got uh, an administration that's very likely to want to continue to use this tool. And you might say, look, it is a dying set of cases in that this maybe, and I'm interested in your reaction to this, is this just a problem for legacy cases that predate 06 or 09 military No, I mean, so, the, so, so the, the ex post facto issue has already been resolved in favor of conspiracy, but against material support and solicitation. Right. So, no, the, the question of the power of the commissions to try domestic offenses is a, is a forward-looking jurisdictional question. I mentioned the case of Hadi al-Iraqi. Yeah. The principal charge against him is inchoate conspiracy. Right. So, you know, I could see if, for example, Hillary had won, um, the court looking at this case and saying, yeah. eh, yeah. you know, we don't love it, but this is not a big deal. Um, especially if it looks like pre President Trump is going to not just continue, but perhaps reinvigorate the commissions, yeah. Belul becomes much, much more important and perhaps much, much more cert-worthy. I, I completely agree that at the end of the day, what really matters for the commissions in the particular context of counterterrorism for circumstances that are different from conventional war crimes and conventional use of military commissions on the battlefield, in that setting, conspiracy is, is the whole ball game. We need to know. It's crazy that we're this many years into this. And we have this. no idea. And we don't know if the main thing that makes it useful in this sort of right. anti-Al-Qaeda context uh, is chargeable. And we should say that, the, guys, the reason why this matters is because very few of the folks who we've picked up um, since 9-11 in this context have been individuals we can tie directly right. to a terrorist attack. If we can, those cases are at least jurisdictionally much easier. The 9-11 yeah. case... Um, right, the cases in civilian court. Exactly, because you're talking about you know killing civilians, etc. There's there's no question these are chargeable offenses. Right. The and, problem is that most of the guys we're picking up, right, their connection to terrorist attacks is a little bit more attenuated, where they're supporting Al Qaeda, where they're fighting on behalf of Al Qaeda, but where they're not directly involved. And the question is whether that's enough to get them into a military commission. So far, the courts have said eh, sometimes we need some clarification. I think that's a completely fair statement, and, and at this point, it's. I think it's obvious that ideas that you may have about letting issues percolate further, that's a recipe for things to percolate for you know, four or five years at a time. More. And so this gets me to the other big case in the Supreme Court, Nashiri. So Nashiri has a slightly different objection. His is not that his crimes weren't war crimes, but that we weren't in a war, right? That in October yeah. 2000, when he allegedly was involved in bombing the USS Cole, he says there was no armed conflict between the U.S. and Al-Qaeda. Now, 
listeners might be saying that sounds like an international law argument. We're not so super into those. Um, actually, the Military Commissions Act itself limits the jurisdiction of the commissions to hostilities as defined by the laws of war. Right. And so in Nashiri's case, he's trying to bring a pretrial challenge to the jurisdiction of a military commission on the ground that we were not at war in October of 2000, that the commission therefore didn't have jurisdiction. You know, to to yeah. me, this is such an interesting question because if you, obviously there are a lot of people that contest the claim that a state of armed conflict was brought about by the 9-11 attacks as opposed to, say, the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, but if you accept that there was, as I do, that an armed conflict uh, did at least at that point exist, uh, how far backwards does it go? Right, and why why was nine eleven enough, but the nineteen ninety eight East African Embassy bombings weren't? Uh, and and are, and, were, and are there other consequences legally to recognizing an armed conflict prior to nine eleven? Um, Bobby, you know, it's an interesting enough merits question. It's actually up in the Supreme Court on whether this question should be answered now. Um, so just to go back to Fed Court's nerdistry for a second, yes. you know, the question that the D.C. Circuit grappled with was whether this kind of claim is cognizable in a pretrial habeas petition or whether under the abstention doctrine named after the case that articulated Councilman, uh, the 1975 Supreme Court case, these kinds of challenges to military jurisdiction should be adjudicated as part of a post-conviction appeal. Um, you know, normally in the military justice system, there's every reason to think the military justice system will handle it fine, yep. that the appeal will come quickly, that yep. we'll figure it out. The problem in Nishiri's case is even the most, you know, sort of consistent estimates of when that case is going to get to a post-conviction appeal have that being seven, eight years from now. Um, Can you imagine if it's undone at that point? Well, that's the question, right? So why, what is, in whose interest, other than the lawyers, right, is it? to invest all of this time in a capital military commission yeah. trial that has this huge yeah. jurisdictional elephant in the room, when the courts can settle that one way or the wouldn't yeah. the government, indeed, be yeah. well-suited by having this question settled now, especially if it thinks it's going to prevail? Do you think the thing that stands in the way of just switching this over to civilian prosecution, where it almost certainly, they'll, they'll get a conviction, uh, is where you'd have to bring him to the U.S.? Or is there any realistic way to do it without bringing him into the U.S.? So I think in Nashiri's case in particular, of all of the nine, of all the military commission cases, Nashiri's I think is the one that is the most beset with the torture question. Um, because, you know, Nashiri is, I mean, obviously some of the 9-11 defendants were also tortured, but in Nashiri's case, there's such a strong chain between some of the statements he made while in custody um, and between his mistreatment, between the documentation of his mistreatment in the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Study, I, I think the real aversion to trying Nishiri in a civilian court was long before the transfer restrictions came into play um, about opening up the sort of specter of what happened to him, to that kind of inspection. But given the, this is interesting to me. I, so obviously I don't follow this as closely as you do, but I'm fascinated that that's the angle that you mentioned because I thought that under, at least as things are under the post-2009 military commission system, uh, the admissibility of evidence still require, now requires a voluntariness no, no, standard. That's right. no, that so, so, so the stuff isn't coming in. But the, I think the concern is that in a civilian court, Nishiri might be able to deploy what happened to him much more aggressively as a defense um, and as a ground on which to seek dismissal of the charges. It, uh, so on a uh, motion to dismiss for outrageous government conduct. Right, which we now, saw in the, now, in the Gailani tried case. That, and Gailani tried it, and neither one of them succeeded. That's so. true, but I guess I guess the concern is that Nishiri's case is, is more egregious and that if there was ever going to be one case where this might actually be a, a, you know, a clear possibility, it would be Nishiri's. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's, it's a question probably better put to the folks who made the decision to keep him in the military commission. We'll try to get him on the show. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, I, I will say, I, I find it, it just strikes me as extremely unlikely that, that 
these cases we get transferred into civilian court only to have a federal district. No, I agree, dismissed. especially because the judge agreement are so much pressure to not. Right? Oh, I mean, it, I mean, if if they do that, there will no one's getting brought in ever I agree. again. But I it's, do think that's one reason why. It's but I do think that Nashiri and Balul together raise the specter of why, leaving aside the policy wisdom of military commissions versus not. What is the value of leaving these questions unsettled, right? I mean, I, oh, just, yeah. it, it's I completely to, agree. Like, there's if there's one thing we ought to all be able to agree on is that all these questions should have been resolved years, years and ago. Years and years ago. So, just the last thing on the military commissions, just because this is a point of personal pride, there's actually a third somewhat military commission related case in the Supreme uh-huh. Court right now, which I am directly responsible for. Um, this is the Dalmazi case, um, which is a challenge to how judges are appointed. Right to the Intermediate Military Commission Court, the Court of Military Commission Review. Not nearly as important. I, I, I can say that without, I think, violating my ethical obligation to my clients. Um, <laughs> as Balul and uh, Nashiri to the future of the military commissions. But I think just bringing into further um, light how legally muddled the structure of the military commissions are, the process is, how there are still some unanswered questions. Because in Dalmazi, the whole issue arises from the sort of band-aid solutions that have arisen as the as the government's trying to figure out how to put judges on this intermediate military court that doesn't really have a lot of work to do. And, and what is that core issue? Um, I'm sorry, and the core, so um, the core issue is as the CMCR was created. Court of Military Commission Review. Indeed. Um, it's probably the case that for Article II purposes, its judges are principal officers, uh-huh. which means that they, unlike most military judges, require nomination by the president, confirmation by the Senate. But there's a very old statute that forbids active duty military officers from assuming those kinds of positions unless Congress expressly authorizes it. Which they haven't done. Which they haven't done. Um, and so there's an argument. Indeed, this what's going on right now is you have three of the five current CMCR judges still sitting on a regular basis on the courts of criminal appeals and the court martial system. Um, and the argument is that they can't do both. So would it be a good fix if... Uh uh, SASC, the Senate Armed Services Committee, and HASC, House Armed Services Committee, uh, were to stick into the next NDAA. So expressly uh, authorized. Yeah. So it would fix the statutory problem. Um, there's a separate constitutional problem, which is that the um, presidentially appointed CMCR judges um, have some kind of tenure protection, which was a response to concerns about the fairness of the military oh, yeah. commissions. Right. Um, military officers don't usually have tenure protection. Uh, and the reason for that is because it might violate the Commander-in-Chief Clause to deprive the President of command authority right. over active-duty military right, officers. Right, right. So, yes, Congress could certainly easily solve the statutory problem. Bobby, it's not clear to me that in so doing, they wouldn't then create a constitutional problem as well. Again, one has to wonder whether any of this is worth the candle at this point. Well, and so that, so again, right, whatever you think the ultimate answers to these legal questions are, I think the one point on which hopefully everyone can agree is we're consuming an awful lot of time and money and forests um, in trying to answer these questions. So to pivot away from all that serious stuff. Serious stuff. Towards things that uh, are completely My not mom's serious. calling to tell us to talk about funnier stuff. Okay, so let's make the switch. I'll, I'll give you funny. DeMarcus Cousins. DeMar- traded Boogie. to the Pelicans. Um, that is funny. Is it, okay, big, good move or... Good move for, let me specify, for New Orleans, because I'm <laughs> pretty sure this might have been a great move for Sacramento. Well, you know, Boogie Cousins is an enigma, right? I mean, Boogie can be a fantastic player, and he can be a, a walking, you know, disaster. Um, I think the question is how he meshes with Anthony Davis. I think Anthony Davis is the brightest up-and-coming star in the NBA. I think he's the guy around which you build a franchise. And so let's bring in sort of a, a veteran, talented guy who's, who's really great in the clubhouse to help... Kind of see. Oh wait, no, no. We're we're talking about kind of 
Kind of the opposite of that. I guess this is a sense out there's a sense out there you gotta have two stars. I, I guess we'll see how it goes. I mean listen, you know, everyone's looking up at a couple different teams in the Eastern and Western Conference. I don't think this is gonna fundamentally alter the dynamics of, you know, yes, the Western Conference playoffs, New Orleans somehow is in the Western yeah. Conference. Um, they yeah, they've got a long road ahead there. But but I mean listen, I think it's it's one of those questions that you often see in the NBA, which is, you know, how much is it the the player and how much of it is the tea, is the fit. Um, clearly, Boogie wasn't fitting in Sacramento. Right, and there's there's a bad there's a bad culture that emerged. Whoever's fault it was, maybe it'll be different this time. You always want to give people that chance. We'll see. But so while we're on the NBA, really quickly, let me take thirty seconds to say I hate the All Star Game. That's 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 un-American. Um, I really don't think it's un-American. <laughs> and, and just just to just to not be a critic, I have a proposal for how to fix it. All right, now now you, know, you got my attention. So you know the NHL oh, has tried these I can, different I can formats. I predict your proposal. Okay. Uh, more spurs. It's outrageous that you only had one spur. <laughs> uh, more cowbell. More cowbell as well. If you combine that, spurs and cowbell. So so dear Adam Silver, um, right? As as Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon like to say, if there's a living, breathing commissioner of the NBA, and if you listen to this podcast. I doubt at least one of those two things is true. Here's my proposal. Have the all-star game teams divided by height. <laughs> Can you unpack that for right? me a little bit? So, you know, what what's more important, right? Big men or guards, right? Have a have a are you taller than Le- have LeBron be the height cutoff, right? Um, LeBron oh, can decide whether he's going to play with the I think LeBron has to go with the small guys, but if you it. are 6'9 or taller, you play on team front court. And if you are 6'8 or smaller, you play on team backcourt. I think it would be fascinating to see who would win a game of big dudes against small guards. Oh, how about this? I have a, I have a counterproposal. And I say this as a 6'8 person who has a vested interest in the height. There you go. Of this. Well, what about this? Um, we have the prior year's all-NBA defensive team mm. against the... Uh, the the offense the first team the first team right the first team is effectively the all offense team um, and then of course there'd be a, the occasional Kawhi Leonard or somebody who's on both and you'd have you'd let them pick I yeah guess. or or make up some fun rules have a four pointer right I mean like it seems a like four pointer oh, yeah that's what the, you should I mean experiment. the NHL right the NHL has I think gotten the message here right they do really wacky weird stuff in their all star games and I'm all for it. What is to stop the NBA from having a four-pointer, um, from having a five-pointer, right? From having, like, lots of random things only also game. Otherwise, all we're watching is, you know, a dunk competition that, frankly, is even worse than the current dunk yeah, competition. It, it does seem like kind of a waste. And, you know, that somebody had online a, a clip of, uh, of a 1980s All-Star game, and the thing that was striking is they actually play some defense. They play defense. They're, they're trying to win yeah. and trying to defeat each other. So, you know, I don't know how to get them to try to win, but at least, you know, maybe, maybe some positional pride, right? Yeah. Some national pride. I, I don't know how to do it, but this this current format has got what, to what be. About, what about uh, in the spirit of the current administration, the American-born players versus international players? I mean, you could do that, too. We have, you know, it's kind of like the Olympics. Um, yeah. That might get boring after a while as well. Yeah. Um, but, what you know, I think we can all agree this current format, not so much. Yep. Hopefully that's not what you're thinking about the format of this show. Please uh, yeah. get on iTunes and give us a review and spread the word to others about the National Security Law Podcast. We've made it through five episodes, Bobby. Maybe we get at least five more. Yeah. The question is whether our listeners are increasing linearly or, or you know, is the first derivative negative, is the second derivative negative? Let's, uh, let's get on the analytics and find out. Thanks for listening, and we uh, hope to hear from you all soon. And uh, this is where we sign off. This is where we sign off. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.